We're rapidly approaching the end of our sermon series, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, Read, Hear, Take to Heart. And we come today again to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Last time we had a look at just a few verses from chapter 21, but today I'd like to read the whole section. Because remember that this book comes with a guaranteed blessing for those who read it and listen to it and take it to heart. And so the best thing we can do today is simply read a large section of God's Word. So Revelation chapter 21 and from verse 1. John says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and women, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all of this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and with twelve angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. He measured its wall and it was 144 cubits thick by man's measurement, which the angel was using. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure, of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, 
the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of pure gold like a transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is God's word. There are various ways of looking at these verses, but I'm going to follow, follow the example of one Bible commentator and look at what is not in our eternal home and what is in our eternal home. So firstly, John gives us six things that he says are not in our eternal home. And the first thing that John tells us will not be there is the sea. Chapter 21, verse 1, John says, and there was no longer any sea. Well, I'm afraid John has lost me right there. My idea of heaven is the sea. I love the sea, whether it's out kayaking on it or swimming in it or walking next to it or just sitting and watching it. Heaven would not be heaven without any sea. I mentioned last week that many people worry that heaven will be boring. And part of the reason, I think, for that is a failure to recognize that the book of Revelation is symbolic. The symbols are not the reality themselves. They simply point to a reality that is more real and more beautiful than the symbol. So, for example, back in chapter 7, we don't believe that the Lord Jesus, when we meet him, is going to look like a lamb that was slain with seven horns and seven eyes. No, he will be a person. But that symbolic picture points to the truth of his person and his work. And in the same way, to take these chapters and to transfer them to the drawing board and say, this is what heaven will be, is to miss the symbolism. I think what John says here is symbolic because, you see, in the ancient world, people believed that the sea was a goddess that needed to be defeated in order to create the world. Uh, the Hebrews didn't buy into that myth, but they did harbor a deep distrust of the sea. 
The Israelites were landlubbers. They were not a seafaring nation. They believed that only God could control the sea. And the sea represented all the forces of chaos that stood opposed to God. Remember that even here in the book of Revelation, we are told in chapter 13 that the great beast who sets himself up in opposition to God comes out of the sea. So when John says that there is no longer any sea, he's saying that the forces of chaos are gone. No more typhoons blowing through the towns and villages of India, leaving millions homeless. No more earthquakes destroying buildings in Turkey. No more tsunamis devastating sections of the coastline of Taiwan. John has already had a vision in chapter 1 in which there was a sea, a sea that sparkled and was as translucent like glass. So I think and hope that this is simply a symbol. Second thing that John tells us is not present in the new heavens and the new earth is a lot less alarming. John tells us that our eternal home will contain no more tears. Verse 4, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There isn't a single human being alive today who has not lived in a world full of death and mourning and crying and pain. In fact, there hasn't been a single human being since Adam and Eve before the fall. At present, the Bible tells us that God sees and measures all our tears. Psalm 56 verse 8 you have kept count of my wanderings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? But one day, God promises to do away with tears altogether. In Isaiah 35, Isaiah is looking forward to the restoration of Jerusalem after its destruction by the Babylonians. And he writes these words. Words which found part of their fulfillment with the restoration of Jerusalem, but will find their ultimate fulfillment at the end of time. He says, therefore the redeemed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. No more tears. Added to that, thirdly, John says that our eternal home will contain no curse. Chapter 22 and verse 3. And there shall no longer be any curse. Every year at Christmas, we sing that wonderful hymn by Isaac Watts, Joy to the World. And in the third verse of the hymn, we sing, No more let sin or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. No more thorns, or pain, or cancer, or illness, or any of the things that we experience in this veil of tears. And it's good to remind ourselves that all of this is made possible through an event that took place on our planet 2,000 years ago. Paul writes to the Galatians and he says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. 
For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Jesus on the cross experienced our curse, our guilt, our shame, our sin, so that one day the curse would be destroyed. Fourthly, John tells us that our eternal home will contain no sin, nor anyone who causes sin. Chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And in verse 8 of that chapter, we read, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. Now, I think it's important to see that John is not giving a blanket condemnation of cowardly behavior, but he's pointing to a group of people who in his day had renounced their faith, who had gone along with emperor worship and the sexual immorality and the idolatry and the paganism and the magic arts that went along with that. These people are, as one Bible commentator puts it, those who in the last resort choose personal safety over faithfulness to Christ. They are like the rootless ones in the parable of the sower, who when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, quickly fall away. They have a lack of genuine commitment that provides the incentive for continuing in spite of persecution. They choose to forget uh, the words of Jesus that whoever wants to save his life will lose it. They are cowardly in the sense that they deny Christ, thereby showing that they never really had a genuine relationship to begin with. Number five, John tells us that our eternal home will contain no temple. Chapter 21, verse 22, I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. I wonder if there are any mathematicians in the service this morning who noticed the measurements of the New Jerusalem. Verse 16, the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. 12,000 stadia is roughly 2,220 kilometers, or the distance from London to Athens. But actually, John is more interested in symbolism than he is in arithmetic. It doesn't really matter whether John is measuring in miles or kilometers or stadia or cubits or feet. The number 12,000 is a perfect number, a symbol. But the most significant thing is that John speaks about length and width and height. They're all the same measurement, 12,000 stadia. In other words, John is picturing a perfect cube. There's only one other place in Scripture that is described as a perfect cube. It's the Holy of Holies in the temple. That was measured out as a perfect cube. Although God fills the universe, he promised his people that he would be present in a particularly special way at the temple and most of all in the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. There, once a year, the high priest would enter and meet with God. 
He would uh, burn incense so that the whole place was covered in smoke so he couldn't really see. He would always go in with the blood of an animal uh, that would cover his sin and the sin of the people. Tradition has it that he would go in with a rope tied around his ankle so that if he dropped dead in the presence of God, at least they would be able to drag his body out. No one else could ever go and meet with God except one man and only once a year. Now... The new Jerusalem is filled with the presence of God in the same way that the most holy place in the Old Testament was filled with his glory. Everyone has equal access to God all of the time. And then number six, John tells us that our eternal home will contain no darkness. Chapter 22, verse 5, there will be no more night. I enjoy sunrises and I enjoy sunsets, but I don't particularly enjoy the night. I don't like driving at night. I don't like having to lock up the house. I don't like waking up to the sound of things that go bump in the night. And I live in a fairly quiet, leafy suburb, which doesn't include some of the fearful realities that others face. Have a look again at chapter 21 and verse 25. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. And there'll be no more night because of the fact that God is there. Chapter 21 and verse 23, the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. Again, I'm not sure if this is describing the astronomy of the new heaven and the new earth. I don't think it's saying that there are no longer any stars or planets or moons. John is simply saying that in the new Jerusalem, there is no need for those things to bring light because God is its light. As John says in his first letter, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. So six things that John says are not in our eternal home. No chaos, tears, curse, sin, temple, night. But secondly, in this passage, John tells us six things that will be there. Firstly, God is there. Chapter 21 and verse 3. Now the dwelling of God is with men and women, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. In the Garden of Eden, every evening, God came down from heaven and walked with Adam and Eve. Later, after the fall, God created a special place, the tabernacle, where he could meet with his people. Later still, we read how God came down, way, way down, and became flesh. The Apostle John says in his Gospel that Jesus tabernacled, pitched his tent with us. And before his death and resurrection and ascension, Jesus said to his disciples, I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back so that you can be with me forever. The entire history of the Bible is about a God who wants to be with his people, with you, with me. Secondly, there's glory. Have a look at chapter 21 and verse 11. The city shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. 
We don't have time this morning to inspect every single element of the New Jerusalem, and perhaps it would not be helpful to do so in any case. Remember, these are symbols that reflect a greater reality. But John's describing a beautiful city, far more magnificent and dazzling than Venice or Paris or Rome. One Bible commentator says the overall picture is of a city of brilliant gold, surrounded by a wall inlaid with jasper and resting upon 12 foundations, adorned with precious gems of every color and hue. The city is magnificent beyond description. As the eternal dwelling place of God and his people, it's described in language that continually attempts to break free from its own limitations in order to do justice to the reality it so imperfectly describes. Third, there is materiality, things, stuff. <laughs> Chapter 21, verse 24. The kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. It's so interesting that the new heavens and the new earth contain a city because throughout the Bible, cities generally are places where men and women have tried to hide from God, to live independently of God. So the first city is built by Cain after he's killed his brother Abel. Later we read of men and women building a city called Babel with a huge tower reaching up to the heavens in opposition against God. Remember how in Revelation chapter 17, John sees Babylon, Rome, any city that stands in opposition to God as being like a great prostitute, full of abominations and filth and drunk on the blood of God's people. And yet, the new creation is not a return to Eden. It's not a reset, but rather a renewal, as we saw last week. There is a city, but it's a garden city like Pylons. <laughs> it combines all that was good from the original creation and all of the glory and the splendor of man's ingenuity and creativity and industriousness, but purged of its sin and evil, renewed and restored. I often quote C.S. Lewis's Narnia books because although they're written for children, they contain fantastic theology. <laughs> And uh, in the final book, The Last Battle, the children, Peter, Edmund, Diggory, Polly, and Lucy, uh, watch as the magical land of Narnia comes to an end. And they find themselves in a different country. Let me read to you what they find. Peter said, Lucy, where is this, do you suppose? If you ask me, said Edmund, it's like somewhere in the Narnian world. Look at those mountains ahead and the big ice mountains beyond them. Surely they're rather like the mountains we used to see from Narnia, the ones up westward beyond the waterfall. Why, they're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Pyre with his forked head and there's the past into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colors on them and they look further away than I remembered and they're more, more... I don't know. More like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, 
all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it's different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow or as waking life is from a dream. It's hard to explain how the sunlit land was different from the old Narnia, as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we loved the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. The reason we love so many of the things of earth is because they reflect our eternal home. And it's not wrong for us to look forward to them in heaven. Some people think that we should only concentrate on the fact that God will be in heaven. And there is truth in that. But things like music and friendship and sunsets and forest and sea are God's good gift to us. And he delights in giving them to us now. And he will delight in giving us the new heaven and the new earth. I don't get upset when my, I give my children Christmas presents and they enjoy their gifts. It gives me great delight. As one writer puts it, while preoccupation with a God-given gift can turn into idolatry, enjoying that same gift with a grateful heart can draw us closer to God. And in heaven, we'll have no capacity to turn people or things into idols. When we find joy in God's gifts, we will be finding our joy in him. Number four, John describes peoples. Going back to verse 3 of chapter 21, literally the verse reads, they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and be their God. It's that wonderful picture that we have earlier in the book in chapter 5, where the elders say to the lamb on the throne, you were slain and with your blood you purchased men and women for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. In chapter 7, John has that vision in which he sees a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Folk from Afghanistan and China and North Korea and the Sudan, people from Zambia, Malawi, Mozambique, all gathered in front of the Lamb. Number five, there's life. I pointed out last week how Revelation chapter 21 and 22 bookends Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis, we're introduced to the tree of life planted in the middle of the garden in front of the four great rivers. To eat from that tree was to live forever. However, due to their sin, Adam and Eve are banished from the garden and the tree, and so in time they die. But now, in this new garden city, we read chapter 22 and verse 2, that on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. As we've seen, no more curse, but rather life 
and health, vitality. And then number six, there is God's face. Chapter 22 and verse, uh, next verse, <laughs> verse four. It's not in my notes, but it's on the screen. <laughs> Just that little phrase, they will see his face. Speaking about the most intimate relationship with God. We'll see the face of Jesus and somehow, I don't know how, we will see the face of God. And it's astounding. In Exodus 33, we read how Moses asks God if he can just see his glory. And God replies, I'll, I'll cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. But you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul describes God as the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. You see, there are some major barriers to you and me seeing God. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The writer to the Hebrews tells us to be holy, for without holiness no one will see the Lord. And yet because of what Jesus did for us on the cross, because when we come to him we are clothed with his purity and his righteousness, we can say with Job in the Old Testament, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end he will stand on the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. We've looked at a lot this morning and a great deal last week too. There's so much more that could be said. I think the bottom line of these chapters though is this, that God's story of love and grace is not just for this world alone, but continues on forever in ways that we cannot possibly imagine, but that we will indeed experience for ourselves and together. I mentioned C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle, a moment ago, and at the risk of ruining the end of the book, and in fact ruining the end of the entire series, uh, let me read to you a final excerpt. At the end of the book, the children realize that the reason they have entered into Aslan's country is because of the fact that they have died. And Lewis describes their eternal home in this way. Aslan, for those of you who don't know, is the great lion in the stories who really represents Jesus. Then Aslan turned to the children and said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you've sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, 
But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. As Paul puts it in Romans chapter 13, the hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Amen.